So if you'll take your Bible and turn to the book of Judges. A dear friend of mine who's served up in Boone at Mount Vernon Baptist Church for the last 35 years or more. Um, but Russell invited me earlier this week to read with him a, a daily Thanksgiving devotion that Ted Tripp has written. And I, I posted a, a link to that on our Facebook page yesterday from um, from yesterday's um, little writing that Tripp had done. This is, this is part of what I posted. Envy is universal because sin is. Envy has its roots in the selfishness of sin. Envy is self-focused. And because it's self-focused, it's entitled. Because it's entitled, it's demanding. Because it's demanding... It tends to judge the goodness of God by whether he has delivered what you feel entitled to. And because it judges God on that basis, it leads you to question God's goodness. And because you question God's goodness, you won't run to him for help. Envy is a spiritual disaster. Envy is what was one of the issues at the root of what was going on with Israel. As we read the book of Judges, imagine you've come out of slavery. You've been in bondage in Egypt all of those years. Yeah, they had food to eat and they had some kind of basic substance that was was theirs. But you come and according to the report of the spies that go into the land of Canaan, it's unbelievable. Remember, they had to put... They had to, they took one bunch of grapes and put it on a big post and two men carried it. It was that large. So it offered to them prosperity and provision like they had never seen. There's cities that are impressive. There's people that are impressive, in fact, frightening to them. And so they go into this cosmopolitan, wealthy part of the world that's been promised to them. Is it any wonder that these former slaves were just taken aback at what they saw? And not only did they see the prosperity, but they saw a religion that was sexual in nature because the Canaanite believed that it was through this connection with these gods that they got this prosperity. And so as, as we see this highly sexualized culture and these sacred prostitutes performing all these sensual pleasures and the gods seemingly responding to that with prosperity, the Israelites, I believe, were envious in some ways. And we see the fruit of that in the book of Judges. And Judges is dark and ugly. It is hard to read in places. Susan and I were talking about it this morning. It's, it's easy for us in our context and culture to overlay what we read with our cultural understanding. And it's, that's not the way you need to read Judges. But nonetheless, it's, it's hard to read. And the reason it's so dark and ugly is given for us very clearly. It says there was no king in Israel, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. So, 
These final five chapters of Judges that we're just going to, I'm not going to read very much of it at all. But these final five chapters just show us how bad things have gotten in Israel. All right. And I think it's just a, a, a snapshot of the depth of what's going on there. We find homemade religion. We find a mother influencing her son in idolatry after he's robbed from her. We find a for hire preacher or priest who will tickle people's ears as they pay him for it. We find rape, intended to be homosexual rape, but it didn't go that way. We find injustice, we find civil war, we find total moral and spiritual bankruptcy. It's, it's an ugly picture. And thank God it is not the end of the story, right? We understand that. That's why we're looking at this. This black backdrop is going to be the background by which we see this beautiful picture of God's sovereign purposes and grace come out as we start the book of Ruth next week. Because Ruth's first verse says, in the days of the judges. So this brokenness and depravity we see, during those days, God is at work. All right? God is at work. We'll, we'll get there, but not yet. Not yet. Now, Judges is ugly, but it is beautifully written. It's a masterpiece of literature. And there's, there's just, just imagine a picture frame, if you were. There's two parts in an introduction and two parts in the conclusion. And we're in the conclusion of the book of Judges in these chapters that we look at today. And they're, if you will, almost like a mirror opposite in some ways. So in the introduction, we find the nation of Israel amongst these Canaanite people amongst these Canaanite nations, these Canaanite places, and they're fighting against the idolatry in the land and the immorality in the land that is around them. But the book of Judges ends with that fight being over. Israel's no longer fighting against idolatry, and they're no longer fighting against immorality, because it, it is them. The idolatry now is not out there, it's in here. And the immorality that was out there is now in here. And so what we have is the Israelites, what one commentator has called the Canaanization of Israel. They become Canaanite in every way. And so the introduction is followed by a long treatment of these 12 judges. We kind of touched on a little bit of that last week. And we start this conclusion in chapter 17. And so let's look at these chapters. And what we've just sung, by the way, was a prayer. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the word of your holy truth. Take those thoughts and fashion us into your likeness. And so we look into the mirror of the word and what we see should rattle us. It really should. So we have first this man named Micah and his homemade religion. And it's a microcosm of the whole nation. Okay? It's just a picture of the whole nation. Of the idolatry and the depth to which the nation has sunk. So just 
There was a man in the hill country of Ephraim, reading in verse 1, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. Oh, my word. So right there. I mean, twelve hundred pieces of silver have been taken. Mama's cursed. You know, the one that took it. It fell into the ears of Micah, and he's all of a sudden returning it. I don't know what prompted him or what stirred his heart. Maybe it was the curse that his mama had announced on him. I don't know. doesn't say. But he brings it back. And she blesses him for it. And the mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, This is great. I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand For my son, to make a carved image and a metal image, now therefore I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to a silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah, and the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod, which is, the ephod is the breastplate that the priest of Israel wore, okay? Specific instructions given in Exodus on how they were to be made. So Micah made an ephod for himself and household gods, and he ordained one of his sons who became his priest. And in case we needed the reminder, which we do in verse 8, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So we have this thief who stirred to give the money back to his mother, and she blesses him for it, thanks God for it, and then proceeds to make idols and molded images, and they create their own little shrine, their own little church, their own little pagan place of worship in their house. Okay? So that's, that's what takes place. Then there's this young man of Bethlehem in Judah, it says in verse 7, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. So what we have now is this Levite, this priest who is not in his... The Levites were not granted or given an inheritance of land by God, but they were given specific cities to live in. And by the way, Bethlehem is not one of them. And so this Levite is just traveling. I don't know if he's an itinerant. I don't know, you know, whether he's one of these... I don't know what he is as far as that goes. It just said that he's sojourning there. He had departed Bethlehem, and as he's journeying in the country of Ephraim, Micah asked him, you know, where are you coming from? He says, I'm a Levite. He says, well, guess what? I'm looking for a Levite. I'm looking for a priest. And he makes him an offer. And he ordained him. He says, I'll give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. Levite's thinking, hmm, that's not a bad offer. Certainly a better one than he had from someplace else, I guess, because he hasn't taken another one. I'm going to be real careful not to speak my, you know, um, what I think about this into this, because I could go off on it. So Michael ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest in his house, it says there in verse 12. And then this man who is deep in paganism, thief, decides that God's going to bless him all of a sudden because he has his own little gods and his own priest. Now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So, here's this picture. 
God has been absolutely clear, has he not, about who he is and how he is to be worshipped. It says in the book of Exodus, you shall make no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's fairly clear, right? And here we see Micah doing the exact opposite and being blessed by his dear mama for doing so. God has also warned us in his word pretty clearly of what happens when we... Do what is right in our own eyes. When we follow our own hearts. The world will tell us to do that. The scriptures tell us that is a disaster waiting to happen. Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful above all things in chapter 17 verse 9. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? So here we see the sickness of Micah's heart. And by the way, God had warned his people what happens when that sick heart makes decisions. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 29, starting in verse 18. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. That's God's statement. Be careful about saying that I'm going to walk with the Lord in this regard. I'm going to follow my heart, and yet there's stubbornness there. So that's what we see in Micah. His homemade religion is just a microcosm of what's going on in Israel. But it is attractive. Look at the next chapter. In chapter 18... We have the Danites, as they're called. This is the, the tribe of the people of Dan. And what we see here is they're, they're on their own self-directed crusade. And, and it's just a violent picture of this delusion that comes as we sink further and further into doing what is right in our own eyes. All right? Look at the first part of verse 18. Again, we're reminded, in those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Ashtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. And when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they, they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? And, and I think commentators tell us that they heard him talking and recognized his accent. Maybe he was from Bladen County. Maybe he was from Lenore. You know, maybe he was from Roanoke. I don't know. But they recognized in his accent, you're not from around here. Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? It says in verse 3. And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. At least he's honest about it. Verse 5. They said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eyes of the Lord. 
Then the five men departed and came to Laish. And saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth. And how they were far away from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. So here's this, these five men coming from the, the people of Dan. And they're opportunistic. They're opportunistic in that they're seeking what, listen, God has already given them. You'll read about it in the book of Joshua. God has already allotted to the people of Dan an inheritance. It's further south than where they are today. In fact, the city of Dan that will come from the destroyed, rebuilt Laish is, is if you look on a map of the Holy Land, Dan is that really northernmost point. But the people of Dan have been given an allotment. And it tells us in chapter 1 of the book of Judges that they were unsuccessful in pushing the Jebusites out. And so they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place there, and they go looking for someplace else to live. It doesn't say the Lord has led them to do that. They're just on this, this, this journey. This. And so they set out looking for another place to go. Now, by the way, Judges chapter 1 tells us how this was supposed to happen. They sought the Lord in Judges chapter 1. He gave them clear instruction about how to go in and take the land, and they did. But that is not what we see here among the people of Dan. They're opportunistic. By the way, we'll see that they're brutal, too. Number two, what we see here is a priest who tickles their ears. There in verses 5 and 6, they say, oh, well, since you're a priest, ask God something for us. See if he's going to bless this. And he's really ambiguous here. By the way, this is a priest who didn't have a place to live, didn't have a place to serve, took the best offer, and now all of a sudden he's speaking for God. And what does he say? He said, the Lord sees what you're doing. That is true. He does. But he doesn't say God approves. He can't say that. But they do, I think, take it as a tacit approval. So they, he is just an example, I believe, of someone who just kind of says what? They want to hear. I mean, these are five warriors. It's clear they're warriors. And in a minute, they're going to exercise that strength as they steal Micah's gods. So this priest is thinking, I might want to say what they want to hear. And he did. And they're pleased with that. So then the tale goes on. Then the, 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 the account gives us further description of what they do. So they spy out this land that is beautiful, fruitful, prosperous, and a people who are quiet and unsuspecting, and they target them. And it says later on, the 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with the weapons of war, set out. They went up there, and on their way back up to Laish to take the land, it says, the five men who had gone out scouting the land of Laish, I'm in verse 14, said to their brothers, Do you know that in the houses there are, that in the houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore, consider what you will do. So they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked about his welfare. So these 600 men are armed with their weapons of war, it says. They're standing at the gate, and these five men go in. They take the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, and the priest. Now, they don't kidnap him. 
They just make him a better offer. It says over in verse 18, the, the priest asked them, what are you doing? And they said, keep quiet, put your hand over your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. It's better for you to be a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest of the house of one man or be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And in verse 20, the priest heart was glad. Of course he is. He's got a great offer. Plus he got a protective thug army. Quit, Gerald. That's you're putting your commentary in it again. His heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. Well, now here's Micah. He's ungodded. They took his gods. He's unguarded, he believes, because those gods are gone. And the men around him recognize that they've stolen their gods. By the way, there's something there, right? If your gods can be stolen and kidnapped and taken, they're probably pretty worthless, right? Just remember that when we fret over our checkbooks and our house and our possessions and those things that we can lose so easily. So they steal his gods and his priest. Of course, they make him a better offer, and he's tickled to death with that offer. And so now this peaceful, unprotected people is destroyed. I mean, by the way, there's a confrontation in the middle of chapter 18 where Micah and some of the men from his, they go and confront these, this army. What in the world did you do, he says. You took my gods that I have made and the priest and you go away. What have I left? Which is exactly what happens when our idols get taken. We have nothing. And he recognizes he's got nothing. And he's desperate. And they basically just say, do you see our size and our army and our weapons? Shut up. And he does. They take his gods, and he turned and went back home, it says in verse 26. So they took all his gods and his priests, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, it says in verse 27, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. And so they burned the city, they destroyed it, they killed all the people, and they rebuilt their own city there and named it Dan. And I want you to see what it says in verse 30. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. And so they set up Micah's carved images that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Now, the Danite conquest is described here as a victory and as success. But there is nothing here that says God is pleased or honored or sanctioning this. I think that's, I think they're presented here in this narrative, in my mind, as just a gang of violent thugs. Thieves, thugs, strong arming their way around the country. And they come into this unsuspecting, peaceful place and destroy it completely. The term there is the term that is used for how God told the Israelites to go in and, and, and take the land. They're devoted to destruction. There's a lot behind that term that we don't have time to really look at today. But here they're, they're doing this in a way that I do not believe is sanctioned by God. 
And what the sad irony about this is, I was talking to Susan about this this morning. Look at what it says there. They set up this image for themselves. And do you see, now we, we find out the name of this Levite, I believe. Jonathan is his name. And he's the son of Gershom. And look at that. He's the son of Moses. So this just heightens the irony of the whole deal. This is the grandson of the one who went up on the mountain and encountered God and brought the law back down. This is the grandson of the lawgiver. And the grandson of the lawgiver is leading the people of God away from that law. He is their pagan, idolatrous priest. That's, it, that's what it seems to be saying here. And so this compromise and this syncretism and this spiritual decay have not only infected the priesthood, but the, the line of the, the, of the most esteemed of the families among the Israelites is corrupted. Remember last week, a generation rose up that did not know God. One generation away from spiritual bankruptcy. There's no guarantee of a spiritual legacy. If that word and, that, and, and the work of God are not continually communicated there. So it's just astounding to me that the grandson of the one who brought the law down is now leading the people to break it. It's deep. The disease of sin and idolatry and corruption is deep in Israel. And, and notice, as I was reading one commentary, I was struck by this. Everyone in this chapter, except the people of Luish, is successful in what they're seeking to do. Right? You see that? Everyone accomplishes what they set out to accomplish. Except, of course, the poor people of Luish. And here's what one commentator said. This, this is an important warning for the modern church. Success, as the world judges this concept, is not necessarily a sign of righteousness or an indication that we're doing something right. Or the way that God would want things done. In fact, he says, it may be just the opposite. God does not squelch every corrupt motive, every thought or scheme of the human being, whether he's an unbeliever or a believer. And just because there is the appearance of success does not signify that the means or methods of the apparent success are godly. The issue of personal and corporate integrity matters. And the ultimate evaluation of success will be based on God's judgment of men's and women's hearts. So we can appear absolutely successful in the eyes of the world and be abject failures and face the judgment of God. And I believe that's what we see in this chapter. Their spiritual roots, their ways of worship have all been compromised. So the spiritual fruit of that dead root is seen. And now in the rest of the book, the moral fruit of that decay is seen. All right. Spirituality has been killed completely pagan. And now we see what it looks like to do what is right in your own eyes for who, to whoever is vulnerable and whoever is available. So, one of the things that's interesting about these last chapters here in the book of Judges is that there's really only one place where anyone is named. It's anonymous. And one commentator said, 
This anonymity is a rule, it seems, in these last three chapters. The main characters are anonymous. And he says this appears to have two functions, and I, I really believe this is insightful. It permits the characters to stand for a wider group, meaning the Levite represents all Levites. And this concubine who is raped and killed can represent every woman. And the father-in-law, every host. And the old man residing in Bethel, every outsider. The anonymity is a deliberate literary device, this commentator said, adopted to reflect the universality of Israel's canonization. So because there's no names, it's everybody. Keep that in mind as you read these last chapters. Because they're, they're just, they're stunning. Even in a night, in a 22, you know, this 2022 culture where all we see is violence and degradation. And we, it's, it's shocking to read this in the Bible. We come to chapter 19. And there's this account of a Levite and his concubine and this dark, dark night in the land of Gibeah. And what we have here is just a stark display of depravity. That's what it is. Now, there's a questionable relationship between this priest and his concubine and and his father-in-law. Okay? I'm not going to read that part of it, but this priest has this concubine. I, I studied this week. We were talking to a couple of other folks about... You know, what exactly is a concubine? Well, it's, it's, it's a relationship between this priest and another woman besides his primary wife. Concubines are basically defined as a woman of lesser value, lesser esteem than, than the man's primary wife. So this priest has a concubine. And she seems to be unfaithful, the text tells us, to him. And runs away to her father's house in Bethlehem. And by the way... There was no king in Israel (laughs) in these days, it says in verse 1. So this man takes his concubine. She runs away to her father-in-law's house. He goes and seeks after her after a period of time. The father-in-law is thrilled that he's come to take his concubine wife, this father's daughter, and he encourages the man to stay with him, and he does. It says there in verse 4, he made him stay. He just just kind of compelled him to stay. They ain't, they drank, they spent the night there. And so this process continues for a few days. The Levite is trying to leave with his concubine, and the father-in-law keeps almost forcing him to stay. And finally, on this last day, please spend the night, it says down in verse 9. The day is drawing to a close. Lodge here, let your heart be merry. Tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning on your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. So he gets up. I mean, he leaves the house late in the day, too late in the day to make it to where he wants to go. And he finds himself there that night trying to find a place to stay. And the account tells us that he comes to the city there which we know, we'll know later on, as Jerusalem. But it's near Jebus, is what it's called here. The day's nearly over. The servant says, let's go stay over here in Jebus, what, what would be Jerusalem. He says, no, we're not going to go stay over there with those foreigners. Let's go on a little further to this area called Gibeah, because that's where the people of Israel are, it says. <laughs> it's You'll see the irony in the fact that he doesn't want to stay with the foreigners because he doesn't trust them. So let's go stay with the people of Israel, where he thinks we'll be safe. 
They turn aside and go and they spend, they go to, go to spend the night in Gibeah. They go into the city square. Evidently it's customary for these folks who are new to the city just to go sit in the city square. And it says that no one took them into the house to spend the night there in verse 15. So they're waiting for someone to come and show them hospitality, which the people of Israel are commanded to do and no one does it. No one wants to take them in in this friendly city where they wanted to go. And so an old man who's from a different place, sojourning there in Gibeah, living among the people, sees them sitting there and says, where are you going? Where have you come from? They tell him where they're going. And, and they say, We've got, we can take care of ourselves. We have straw to feed our donkeys, bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. The old man says, peace to you, in verse 20, I will care for all your wants. Do not spend the night in the square. So he brought them into his house, gave them food to eat, it says. He fed their donkeys. They washed their feet. They ate and their drink. Now then, let your mind go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happened there? In Lot's house. Because the same thing happens here. But it's not in Sodom and Gomorrah now. It's in the promised land. And it's not Sodomites. It's Israelites. As they're making their hearts merry in verse 22, men of the city, worthless fellows, literally means sons of Belial, surrounded the house beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. This is homosexual rape, in case you don't understand it. Just like we saw in Sodom. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Well, good for you. You're at least speaking against them and trying to discourage them. No, not good for you. Behold, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you, but... Against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. So we have this questionable relationship between this priest and his concubine. We have this cold town with even colder hearts that won't invite him in. We have this old man who invites him in. And what we have now is these honestly perverted rapists who come to take this man and do with him as they please. And then we have this, this old man as a host who does what we cannot imagine. But did you catch it? It's not the old man who puts the woman out. It's her Husband. He comes and takes his concubine and puts her out in the street for these men to do with as they please. I think he's just a cowardly, hard-hearted pimp right now. And he just puts her out there. And you know, this woman is not named, as is the case with most victims. She's not named. And the, and the writer of the text is clear to let us know that this, he gives us the stages. They raped her. They abused her. I mean, it's, it's gruesome. 
And so in the morning, (laughs) so he throws her out to these dogs and goes to bed. And seemingly goes to sleep. And wakes up in the morning and he opens the door and there she is lying at the door. Catch this in verse 27. With her hands on the threshold. That breaks my heart. I don't know how she got back there. But she died with her hands on the door. Or at least is laying there with her hands on the door. And being the compassionate man that he is, he says, get up, let us be going. But there's no answer. So he puts her on the donkey, rose up and went his way. And the rest of the account says that when he gets to where it is he's going, he realizes that she's dead. I don't know if he knew she was dead when he put him off on the donkey. Some commentators speculate that she wasn't dead until he hacked her up into 12 pieces. We don't really know. But he takes her home and cuts this woman up into 12 pieces and sends them out to the 12 tribes of Israel. And their response in verse 30, And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So, we have this... Let's just move on into chapter 20. Because chapter 20 now, all these folks have received this package. These 12 tribes have received this package. And there's an uproar. Putting it mildly. And it says, All of the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. So all of Israel is assembled there. It says there are 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had come up to Mizpah. So... Tell us how this evil happened. So here's this priest, this Levite, being called to be a witness. And I have headed this little section, the Levite's half-truths and Israel's costly retribution. Because civil war breaks out. Now, at this point in time, we know more about this situation than these folks, than these folks who are hearing this priest. Okay, We know what happened to Gibeah. We know how he's the one who took her and put her out. To save his own tail end. We know how he's the one who initiated this. But that's not what they hear when he gives testimony in chapter 20. We've seen him be self-centered. We've seen him be calloused. We've seen him be cowardly. But when he gives testimony to the assembly... He says, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. Is that what happened? Well, that's what they hear. And if they had been following the Levitical law, if they had been following what God would have told them to do, which He did in Deuteronomy 23, in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 13, it says you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And they did none of that. 
They just took this guy's word for it. And they're zealous to respond. So this false witness tells partial truths, and then he just disappears. We have nothing else from him. And the tribes of Israel rise up as one, almost as one, and come against the people of Benjamin. Because they ask the people of Benjamin to turn over the criminals, and they don't do it. They're unwilling to do that. And chapter 20 gives us the details of three different battles, okay? All of this army goes up against the people of the Benjaminites. They get beat the first time. They get beat the second time. And the third time, they come and inquire of the Lord and say, should we go or should we not? And that's the only time they actually inquire as they should. And God does give them instructions. And they go back in a third time. They set an ambush and they're victorious. They, they almost decimate a fellow tribe of Israel as they go in and take revenge for what has gone on in Gibeah. The account that is given for us there in chapter 20 is one of total destruction. It's astounding. You know what's interesting about this is that Israel seems to have their favorite sins. And if they were being obedient to what God had commanded them to do, they would have gone up to Micah's house and carried out this kind of judgment. Right? They would have gone to the house of the idolater and cleaned house. But we have our favorite sins, don't we? We have some that we pay a lot of attention to and some that we just kind of turn a blind eye to and overlook. There's some that we'll raise the flag over and there's others that we just cover up and forget. There's nothing new under the sun. And these half-truths from this cowardly Levite bring about a civil war. As the people of God fight against the people of God. And decimate them. Decimate them to the point that if you look in chapter 21, all of a sudden they recognize we got a problem. Now, one commentator has called these chapters of Judges a comedy of errors. There's nothing funny about it. But it just seems to get worse and worse and worse as they go. And they make one mess in one chapter and try to fix it in the next chapter, and it gets worse. And so now all of a sudden they find themselves faced with a problem when they come to chapter 21. The possibility that one of God's people's tribes will be extinct, wiped out. The men of Israel had sworn, now here's another rash oath that has been made in the book of Judges. The men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. So not only are they wiping out the people of Benjamin, they're going to make sure that they can't continue to produce. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept bitterly, and they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? It's a little late to be worried about that. But they are. And the next day the people rose and built an altar, altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. 
And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly of the, in the assembly to the Lord? Because they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying he shall surely be put to death. So you see what's happening? They'd taken an oath earlier. All right, because of this mess that's in Benjamin, we're not going to allow any of our daughters to marry those boys. And after they've nearly wiped them out, they realize there's no way they can continue to be a people of a part of our a part of our nation. We got to do something so these boys will have girls to marry. So they had made another oath that if one of those tribes of Israel did not take part in that former war against Benjamin, then we'll put them to death. <laughs> it's just crazy. Um, so there was one tribe that did not. They came to the camp of Jabesh Gilead. And when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there, it says in verse 9. So they responded in verse 10 by sending 12,000 of their bravest men, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. So here the people of God are doing to one another exactly what God had commanded them to do when they went into the promised land. Except now again they're doing it to their own people. And they says in verse 12, they found all the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, among them, it says, they found 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them back at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. So they killed every man and every woman that had ever lain with a man and all the children and kept 400 virgins and brought them back so the boys at Benjamin would have wives. I didn't write it. It's just here. And it's inspired. And it's for our good. As hard as that might be to see. 400 wasn't enough. So now they have another problem. And it says there in verse 13 that they had saved these women and kept, but it's not enough for them. And the people had more compassion, it says in verse 15. They had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. So the elders of the congregation, so here's the elders of God's people leading them into this next travesty. What shall we do for those who, for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out. So they wanted to make sure they had enough girls to go around for all of the guys. Yet we cannot give them... From our daughters, it says in verse 18, because we've swore, cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they've got this oath that they've made. They don't want to break that oath. And in verse 20, they commanded the people of Benjamin saying, go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch for the daughters of Shiloh to come out and dance in the dances. And when they come out in the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers come out and complain in verse 22, they say, we'll handle it. We'll make them afraid of that very curse themselves. And so they go and they lie and wait. And when these daughters of Shiloh come out in this celebration, they kidnap them. This is nuts. This is depravity. This is what the human heart does when it has no king and does what is right in its own eyes. 
And so, they all live happily ever after? <laughs> no. It does say, just as it says, you know, when they got into the promised land, Joshua points out that every man and his tribe and his family went out to his inheritance. And here they go back out to their inheritance after this train wreck. And in verse 25, the book closes, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And just so we're reminded again of what it is. This kind of moral, political, spiritual, social chaos is what happens outside of God's reign and rule in the heart of a human being. It's what happens even when God's people lose sight of God's word and God's ways and begin to think and rationalize with their own hearts and their own minds. It's what happens when the people of God are canonized or culturalized or become like the world around us. Because we live in a world that does right in its own eyes, right? And it's catchy. And it's attractive. And it's sensual. And we're deceiving ourselves if we think we're immune. So, we need a king, right? We need a king. We need a righteous king. And one is coming. It's going to be a long, winding, crooked road to get to him. But one is coming. And that's, that's what we'll start to see next week. Let me give you four points of application here, okay? Just, are these in the sermon notes? I don't remember if they're there or not. Okay, okay. Judges is a picture of our heart. Here's the deal, church. We do not have to do anything to be canonized. Nothing. It just happens. We just let the world and the culture drift along and we drift with it. So you don't have to do anything to be canonized. It takes no effort. So it requires intentionality, diligence, fellowship. It, it, it requires us coming together as the people of God and, and seeking His face, exhibiting countercultural love, countercultural service, countercultural lifestyle. We need the King who can save us and lead us. And Judges is a mirror of our heart. Do not think for one second that we are above anything we read here. That's the point. We need a King. And we've encountered corruption and the breaking of covenant and all of this. And we see the mercy of God. We see the patience of God. We see the anger of God. And so ultimately, the book of Judges, in all of its ugliness, is written, as Jesus said in John 5:29. I mentioned this last week. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. How in the world does Judges bear witness to Jesus? Well, we need that kind of a king. We need what they did not have. Leadership matters. That's the second point. Men, who or what is leading your heart? Women, who or what is leading your heart? 
Mom and dad, who or what is leading your family? Who or what is leading in the church? We've seen what happens when the primary faith influencer of the family, the parents, fail to do that. Judges is full of it. So, judges is a wake-up call to us as individuals, as families, and as a church that character matters. Character matters. And as we seek that kind of leadership, we also recognize that the end does not justify the means. Success in the eyes of the world is not necessarily success in God's eyes. Leadership matters. Thirdly, everyday moral ethical decisions matter. There are no insignificant decisions. We see the people of God doing all kinds of things in the book of Judges. We don't see them seeking the Lord in much of it at all. And so there's no little decision. Why now that's no big deal. And I recognize that there's, you know, there's ways we apply that. But the point is, we need to be seeking the Lord. Praying through these decisions. Because these decisions, morally and ethically, have consequences that are far-reaching. The idolatry of one little boy, you know, Micah. The idolatry and the thievery of Micah spread its way out into a massive civil war in Israel. So they have consequences. But finally, our perspective matters. Here's what I mean by that. Touches back on what Josh preached a couple of weeks ago. Yes, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. That's how Ruth begins. But we are hopeful because we know that there is that king, right? And today, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, then he is the king of your heart. He's the king of your life. And apart from him, you've got no direction. You've got no true north. So come to Christ today. And as the people of God, our hope and our confidence lies in Christ. Not in the culture, not in the, not in the government. It's, it's in Jesus. And, and that's, that's our focus, our perspective. We're to be people of hope. We're truthful. We're aware. We see the world for what it is. But we're always praying, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And start right here in that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the book of Judges, for all of its ugliness and all of what we see happening in a human heart. God, thank you for the mirror of your word. Thank you for King Jesus and the work of your spirit in the lives of your people. Father, I pray if someone here today has never trusted in King Jesus, if they've never repented of their sins and trusted in Christ as their Lord and their leader and their king, I pray, God, that they would. Guard our hearts from choosing our favorite sins, Lord, I pray. Guard our hearts from having our... Our, our vision skewed by the culture around us. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, Lord, I pray. Keep our hearts hungry after you and your ways. Forgive us, Lord, when we envy and want what this Canaanized world around us has to offer. Lord, may, may your people here at Westwood seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, trusting that you'll add everything else to us as we need it. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.